Thank you very much for that kind introduction. And thank you, of course, for having me here. Um, so I first run, like, got to know the Dominicans uh, when I was uh, at the University of Virginia, very briefly, um, and fell in love with the order. So when the Thomistic Institute started and they asked me to be involved with them, I was, of course, thrilled uh, to be so. Uh, so what I want to talk to you about tonight, that I gave this rather sort of vague title of Catholicism and modern astronomy, at least to me, it was a bit vague, um, to give myself space to talk about several different aspects of astronomy and Catholicism. And in particular, I want to touch uh, rather quickly on three uh, quite different topics, uh, but topics that I find that I most often get asked about uh, by students. Uh, so one is uh, modern cosmology uh, and creation. So how do we think as Catholics? How do we think about cosmology? Does it mean anything? Uh, is it a problem in any way for, for how we approach uh, creation and our uh, you know, biblical understanding of God as the origin of all things? Uh, the second topic uh, is another discovery in astronomy, which is that of exoplanets. And that, of course, leads to speculation on whether there is someone there on those exoplanets. So I want to talk about that in relation a little bit, continuing more to think about creation, uh, but maybe more specifically creation of human, human beings and salvation through the incarnation. And then the third topic I want to change uh, from sort of the objective from scientific discoveries to talk uh, to you about the practice of astronomy. Uh, what does it mean to be a Catholic astro astronomer or astrophysicist? And you could put any, I think, scientist uh, replace, replace that. And how, is, is there a difference between a Catholic doing astrophysics? astrophysics? Is there something we should really think about uh, when we see our, our job as a vocation? But let's start with the first topic. So Big Bang cosmology uh, and creation. Um, just to remind ourselves, or maybe find out for the first time, what scientists mean with uh, Big Bang uh, cosmology. Um, so this is the scientific theory, and very well-established scientific theory, uh, that the whole visible universe, which is you know billions of light years big, when one light year is the distance it takes for light, uh, for light uh, uh, the distance light can travel in one year. Um, that this billions of light years large universe, uh, if we go back a little bit more than 13 billion years, we could fit in something that's smaller than the nucleus of an atom. So we have this incredibly dense, strange beginnings uh, of, our, of our universe. Um, whether that initial very dense, very strange state, what that came from, the Big Bang theory does not tell. Um, it could have come out of nothing. It could have come out of something else. That is just beyond what we can know based on what we, what we observe and even where our laws of physics uh, take us. Um, this is something um, that sometimes is raised as an issue. I mean, if we compare the beginning of Genesis with this 13 billion years sort of uh, evolution of our universe, it seems like they're, they're somewhat different. Um, I would say as Catholics, it's, um, it's not something that we have to be too concerned about. Of course, you should ponder these things, but we have a, a long tradition of understanding Genesis as not a scientific textbook. 
And there's two different reasons for that, two major reasons. One is if you are faithful to the text itself, it gives no signs of that it should be treated that way. Uh, one of the most obvious examples, which I'm sure that you have noticed, is that the sun is created on the third day, which begs the question what day means um, if you don't have the sun uh, in, in place. Um, the other reason that we as Catholics uh, have a lot of liberty with how we read the sort of historical aspects or what could be taken as historical aspects of Genesis is that there's a long tradition in the Catholic Church to use the light of natural reason, to use uh, what we learn from science to interpret uh, things that touches upon the natural world in scripture. So if you want to really go back to something quite basic on this, St. Augustine has a wonderful commentary on Genesis where he makes exactly this point. So I think whether you go directly to the text or you go through this long history of commentary that we have within the Catholic Church, you will, I think you'll come out of it not too concerned about that we now have a better understanding of what kind of cosmology we inhabited than we did you know, 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, depending on when, when we think that Genesis was written down. There's another extreme, though, that I think we should avoid, maybe that we're more prone to make as Catholics, which is to identify the Big Bang with creation as described uh, in, in Genesis. When the Big Bang uh, idea was conceived uh, by the MEP, um, there was a concern among his fellow scientists, and they were mostly of the atheist or agnostic persuasion, uh, that this sounded a bit too Christian, that it sounded like he was trying to come up with an idea where the whole universe came into being from nothing, which sounded suspiciously like that first verse uh, of Genesis. And this was not made better by the Lemaitre, the father of the Big Bang Theory, was Father Lemaitre, uh, a Belgian priest. Um, so there was already in the 1920s and 30s when this idea came into existence, there was the idea that maybe there is some religious significance to this that's actually positive, that is supporting the Christian narrative. Uh, at the time, the Pope at the time went as far as to fully endorsing this as evidence for creation out of nothing, as uh, we believe in that the universe is fundamentally comes out of nothing, comes out of God, is something God created. This is also not a good, good place to be at because as I said at the beginning, we don't know that the Big Bang happened out of nothing. There are theories about what kind of states that could have existed before the Big Bang that the universe could have um, come out of, that the Big Bang could have come out of. So this is not evidence of that we have a creation out of nothing as understand uh, when we read Genesis, for example. So does this mean that there's no significance at all? Uh, were the astrophysicists at the time of Father Lemaitre, uh, were they totally wrong in being worried that, that this sounded a bit too, too Christian, too religious? I would say no. Uh, there, there is significance to it, but it's not of that sort of equal sign sort where you put creation equal to, uh, to the Big Bang uh, theory. Um, I cannot imagine a more powerful and beautiful icon of creation out of nothing than the Big Bang. I mean, if you think about it, um, here from our vantage point, it does actually look like our universe just comes into existence. Um, this 
um, is remarkably similar to what we would have expected uh, as, as Christians uh, from the biblical story. Uh, it does something else, though, um, which is, I think, was part why it was so problematic to find out that the Big Bang Theory is probably right, uh, which is that whether we have an infinite or, or finite universe, an eternal or a, or an eternal universe, a universe, a universe that comes into being, uh, the universe is fundamentally contingent. But it's somehow easier to ignore uh, if it is something that's always existed. And this is what people believed at the time of Father Lamette, that the universe had always existed in roughly the same state, it just had always been there. And if you have something that's always been around, uh, I think it's easier to forget that somebody actually has to hold up the universe or bring it into existence. But if you have this great icon of the universe coming into existence, that argument from contingency, which is one of the famous proofs for God's existence, uh, it sort of is more in your face. And I don't think it's by accident that in the maybe one of the most atheist ages that we have gone through, that is when this is discovered. So, putting, I think, some well-placed doubts in people's heads about whether they actually understand the universe and its origin uh, after all. The Big Bang cosmology does another thing as well, uh, or shows us, another, shows us another thing as well, which is not just gives an icon of that the universe is created, but it does re reveal something about how God creates or what creation is like. If we think about what kind of universe we live in. Um, it is a universe that changes over time, and it changes dramatically. Remember, I told you the whole visible universe once fit into something that's smaller than the nucleus of an atom, and now we have stars, galaxies, planets. Something happened in between. Uh, dramatic things happened in between. So we live in a universe that evolves over time, and there's... Um, Something very beautiful about the idea of that we have a universe that gets to be part in its own creation and unfolding. Um, this, to me, I think, again, is a, is a beautiful icon of that we, ha we have a God who seems to really delight in sharing his creative powers. I mean, I think it's shown, uh, in some sense, most obviously in the rational animals that we are, uh, in human beings that have also free will and can make decisions and really, um, in a very in what we call a very creative way, uh, uh, take creation in new directions. But even in the natural world, we do see creation unfolding, and we do see past things and processes leading to new and unexpected structures uh, in the future. There is there's some that have been concerned about, about this, that it seems like maybe we are removing things from God's purview as science gets better and better to explain how things fit together and how one very complex thing like the human body can evolve from something like a bacteria. When you remove sort of God's direct action, don't you sometimes remove powers uh, from God? Uh, I would say quite the opposite. And this is where, and as you see this both on a cosmological level and uh, on an evolutionary level here on Earth, um, if you, I don't know how many of you that have younger siblings, but maybe even those of you who don't can, can imagine the following scenario. 
that you're sitting with your younger sibling, let's say three or four years old, and they want to, and they see a squirrel and want to draw the squirrel. Which is the easiest? And I have squirrels on my mind because they're eating my tomatoes right now. Uh, and they, they want to draw the squirrel. Which is the easiest to do, or like the hardest to do? Is it to draw the squirrel yourself, or is it to teach that child to draw that squirrel? I would say that actually helping that child become a co-creator, it's much more difficult. And I think in the same way, the fact that God has created a co-creating universe reveals his powers in a much more beautiful and powerful way than if everything we're trying, we could explain everything only by sort of direct intervention from him. The final thing about the Big Bang cosmology that I want to touch upon is that it reveals a universe that's incredibly big. Uh, this again has sometimes been used as an argument against the Christian worldview, which seems to elevate our home, the earth, and our human race uh, to very grand heights. And if we are just this tiny, tiny, you know, sitting in this tiny corner of the universe and we're such a small part of it, how does it make sense that God cares this much about humans? even about individual humans, even more insignificant than humanity uh, as a whole. My first response to that, before even getting into just how big the universe is and you know, the, the extra problems that maybe Big Bang cosmology brings, is that this is not a new thing. Um, if um, you look up what the psalmist says in Psalm 8, he says something like this. This is you know, King David's time, roughly. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The universe has always been very big. Long before we knew that it was billions of light years, it was still big compared to human beings, such that the psalmist could rightly wonder how could God care about human beings when we're so insignificant compared to everything else. But the psalmist, who is a faithful Jew, continues, yet you have made him little less than a god, crowned him with glory and honor. And I think today knowing just how grand of a universe we live in, in some sense makes the fact that God sees us as significant even though we now know just how insignificant we are, even more significant. I mean, this is, and not only that, but I think it makes the incarnation, which was always a radical, you know, wild thing. Now it is the creator of this billions of light years, large universe have stepped into its creation. And I think it, again, puts in our face just how uh, how much God loves us and how crazy that is. It sort of put, gives things the right proportions in a way that's maybe truer now than it was a few thousand years ago when we had a smaller, smaller cosmos. I think another couple of things that makes it very providential that the universe turns out to be just this grand is that it gives us an inkling Maybe icon is better word, but it's an inkling of what infinity and eternity actually is. I mean, from a human point of view, 13 billion years could as good, you know, could just as well be eternity. Um, 
and 13 billion light years could just as well be infinity. That is not something that we can grasp. And the fact that we can't grasp something that we still have very good scientific reasons to think is true, I think should also make us pause whenever we you know, get doubtful about who God is, his powers, his existence, just because it's not something we can grasp. So we have this sort of natural path as to train our intellect to grasp the things that are ungraspable that I find to be very providential. So to uh, sort of finish up this first section, when we think about the scientific discoveries in, in cosmology in the past 100 years or so, I mean, what we see is a very unexpected universe, a universe, as far as we can tell, that came into existence, um, a universe that evolves over time, that reveals incredible order, uh, and that is incredibly large and old. And as far as I can tell, these are all incredibly providential discoveries that happened at the time where maybe the mind of humanity was straying away from the wonderful awesomeness that is God. And these are putting some of the very basic questions back in front of us, the same kind of questions that, you know, the generations before us had struggled with, but maybe with, with different kind of icons uh, in place. So with that, I want to switch over to my second topic. So this is exoplanets and extraterrestrials and how we should think about humanity and incarnation in light of that. So the Big Bang cosmology, that's something that started developing about a century ago. Uh, it took up until the 90s before we found out that there were other planets than those in the solar system. So this is a much more recent discovery. Um, today, we know of thousands of planets around other stars, so-called exoplanets or extrasolar planets. Um, and the fact that we have found already thousands of them, and these are pretty hard to find because you know they're they're small, they're far away and comparatively small to, to the stars we typically study. Uh, that means that all stars have planets, more or less. There's like sort of factor of two uncertainty, but as far as we can tell, stars have planets around them. Um, these planets don't look exactly the same like the solar system on average. In fact, the most common planet that we see is a kind of planet we don't have in the solar system. So in the solar system, we have you know, four rocky planets close to, the, close to the sun. Then we have two gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, and then two ice giants. The most common planet that we have seen is something in between an Earth and an ice giant. So for some reason, that planet did not form in our solar system, but that's, that's the one we most often see. But there are also many planets that look more like the Earth and that are sitting at the distance from their, from their star where we think they could potentially be habitable. So they could host a life of their own. Conservatively, maybe there is a billion of them in our galaxy alone, and then there are about 100 billion galaxies in our uh, indivisible part of the universe. So there's a lot of them. Um, this um, makes, I think, both scientists and non-scientists wonder if they are these maybe habitable planets, there are so many of them, are they, how many of them are actually inhabited, if any? Most scientists that you ask would intuit that life is quite common uh, in the universe. 
Um, now, they don't have any scientific proof for this, but so I'll try to explain where this intuition comes from but before getting into what perhaps theological consequences this might have. One is a very, in some sense, very rough one, which is that I just told you there are tons of planets out there. Even if the chance of any one of them becoming uh, inhabited, um, you just have so many uh, options that one of them is bound uh, to have life originating on them. Um, that is, of course, true unless life is so difficult to originate that it takes you know, a hundred billion times a billion planets for it to actually work. But there's intuition that it should, it's not that, that hard, and there are so many planets out there. A version of this argument, which I would say is more philosophical, is that an aversion to that we should be special. Um, so we, we're orbiting a normal star, we're sitting on what seems like a normal planet, uh, why would our planet be so different compared to other planets? It just doesn't make sense uh, to most animal uh, scientists. I don't find either of those arguments very compelling, but there is a third argument that I do find more compelling. And that is one that's actually trying to understand how life came into existence here on Earth. Uh, so we know roughly, we have at least some constraints on when life originated here on Earth. It happened within half a billion year of the Earth becoming habitable. So about three and a half, by three and a half billion years ago, there was life here uh, on, on Earth. If there might have been life before, we just can't tell, but we can't tell that by 3.5 billion years ago, there was life. Now, this is fairly fast. If you think about that an Earth-like planet uh, remains habitable for maybe eight billion years, so then it took less than 10% of the lifetime of a planet to develop life, suggests that it's something that happens quite quickly and quite easily also on other planets. In addition, we have some ideas of the different mechanisms that took us from chemistry uh, to biology. It's not a solved problem by, en by any means, but there are at least some of the steps there that have been, I think, figured out quite convincingly. And these two things together suggest that um, if you believe that uh, life can originate as a nat natural process, which I do, uh, that, it that it can happen quite frequently. Uh, and that we could easily have at least bacterial life uh, on, let's say, 100 million planets in the galaxy. That, that would not be beyond the pale of what many scientists would guess. Um, but as I said, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is that it's very difficult to actually detect it. Uh, these planets are far away. The only way we can get information from them is by looking at the light that is either absorbed or emitted by these planets. Uh, luckily, if we look very carefully, there are imprints in this light of what molecules they have in their atmosphere. So if they have oxygen in their atmosphere, uh, we should, we don't have the telescopes right now, but within a decade or so, we'll have the telescopes to tell if they have oxygen uh, in their atmosphere. Um, so this will give us pretty good hints on whether a planet has life or not, but it's not gonna tell, what, it's gonna tell us with absolute certainty. But still, astronomers are super excited about this new generation of telescopes that will actually allow us to tell with a much higher probability or not uh, how often, how frequently these planets are, are actually inhabited. 
So what's the, what's the theological significance uh, of this? Um, if you listen to, to some uh, on, the, on the more atheist persuasion, this would just finish off the Copernican evolution, show us once and for all that we're indeed not special. There is no reason to think that we are special, that God would care particularly about this planet. That's actually just prideful. And we should just accept that we are one of many, many living systems and uh, continue on with our happy atheist uh, lives. Um, another concern is that if we find that life is quite frequent on other planets, uh, that would really point to that the origin of life is a natural step that can happen without any divine intervention, again, removing maybe one of the last tasks uh, of, of God uh, in setting up uh, a planet that is suitable uh, for people like us. Um, I don't find either, I guess, very convincing. Uh, as we already talked about, if it turns out that we have a universe that's uh, teeming with life, that uh, again, that is this incredibly big and has all these interesting structures in it. And since by faith, we know just how much God cares about us, that makes this love all the more extraordinary, not, uh, not less. Um, and also, as we already talked about, actually creating a universe where you can have such amazing structures like a living cell coming into existence naturally is actually much more impressive uh, than a miraculous origin of life. Uh, which, by the way, is still up for grabs. We don't know how life originated, but I, I think we will find out uh, that it is indeed a natural process. I think um, that these objections, I think, don't carry much weight. doesn't mean that it's, again, without significance, whether we end up living in a universe that's teeming with life or a universe that's very poor uh, in life. Uh, it is the difference between the whole universe being a garden um, or us, the Earth, being sort of a lonely ark that is sailing through space and time, carrying all the life of the universe with it. I think both scenarios carry beauty or in them, uh, but they are certainly very different. And I think they do reveal something about what kind of God we have. What it gives us some new new information about His personality. Um, I happen to think it's the former, that life, it will turn out to be quite abundant in the universe. Uh, this is, I have as I said, no scientific reason for it really, and no strong theological reason. Beyond that, it seems that you read Genesis, that God really enjoys creating things. And there is, it would be strange to me that he created such a big universe without exploring other kinds of life on other planets. But on the other hand, God is, uh, ridiculously super abundant in his phrases to us, and it wouldn't be beyond him to create the entire universe uh, just for just for our enjoyment as a and to save some of our scientific uh, curiosity. I think the really interesting theological implications uh, come when we stop considering life of any kind and start considering what probably you all thought about when I talked about extraterrestrial life which is life that is somewhat like us, that is intelligent uh, extraterrestrial life. Quick caveat, intelligent and rational does not have to be the same thing. 
I mean, here on Earth, most people would call some of the great apes and dolphins intelligent animals. These are animals that behavior that uh, reveal sort of thinking patterns in some sense, in at least some rudimentary sense. Uh, while we hold by faith, and I think there are also good philosophical arguments for it, that we have a different kind of soul than those kind of than intelligent animals, a rational soul that allows abstract thinking in a, at a whole different uh, register. Uh, a rational soul is a personal gift from God that happens at the creation of every new human being. So if there are rational beings out there, if there are rational extraterrestrials, that means they are the very particular creation of God. And I think that alone should give us some comfort. It's not like it's gonna be by sort of accident that there are, if there are any such extraterrestrials, they have to be very much part of God's plan. Um, but if they exist, um, there are some theological uh, issues that potentially arise. The most important of them, I would say, have to do with the incarnation uh, and how we're saved through the incarnation. Um, if we think about our extraterrestrial, our rational extraterrestrial, there's sort of four options. Um, one is that they didn't fall, and therefore they don't need to be saved by the incarnation, either ours or someone else. They fell, and God allowed them to stay fallen. They fell and they were saved by the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They fell and they were saved through some other mean. I think those exhaust all the sort of logical possibilities. The first one is definitely a possibility. Uh, if we look at the intelligence beings we know of, so humans and angels, uh, a lot of them fell, but not all of them. Uh, most of the, like, good portion of the angels did not fall, so the fall was not necessary for an intelligent creature. Uh, but I would say if there are many extraterrestrial, rational, uh, kind of, uh, I would call them theologically human in some sense, these rational animals out there, it does seem pretty probable that some of them would have fallen, just to be again as humans uh, and angels. So, uh, so I'm not going to further discuss that one. I also want to take number two off the table. It is not that God owes to save us once we have fallen, so I don't want to imply that. But I think from everything we know about God's interactions with humans is this you know, continuous pursuit of fallen humanity. And it would seem very strange to me that he would not pursue any other rational creature uh, he had created with an equal ferocity. Uh, so I'm gonna assume that two is not an option, that they fell and God uh, allowed them to be fallen. So that leaves us with that they are saved either through the incarnation or through some other means. The attractive thing with thinking about them possibly being, sa uh, being saved or hypothetical aliens uh, through the incarnation is that I think we all intuit that this was such a great thing that the second person of the Trinity became incarnate that it doesn't really seem fitting that it, that it should be a thing that happened more than once. This is something that should have saved the entire creation uh, from itself. Uh, but there are, of course, issues with this. So say one is more practical. How would we communicate the incarnation uh, of Christ uh, to civilizations that are millions of light years away? This is far from obvious that this could be done by natural means. 
the second is, isn't it very strange to think that we somehow were chosen to have the incarnation and those other races of rational beings were, were not? Isn't that incredibly prideful? Um, that one actually I'm not too worried about. If we look at how the salvation has worked itself out here on Earth, God seems to actually like picking a small people or even a single person and then sort of work through them to save and more and more people. The third one, I think, is the most serious one, which is that our understanding of how the incarnation saves uh, puts uh, a direct connection between Adam and between Jesus. Um, so we have in, you know, and this is uh, both in the the Gospels and, Gospels and the letters. So Paul, for example, writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So there is that direct connection that you would not have between an alien race uh, and, and Christ. Now, this, if this turns out to be true, and you are allowed to, to ponder this, uh, then we would have to rethink what passages like that means in the letters and whether being a biological human is actually important for being saved through the incarnation or if just being a theological human, a rational animal is sufficient. But there are issues and I think that's why the fourth, and we should at least briefly ponder the fourth option, can an alien race be saved through some other means than through the incarnation uh, of Jesus Christ? And the short answer is yes. I mean, God could have saved us through any other mean that he had, he had wanted. Um, he chose to save us, though, in this very particular way through the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And theologians have for a long time thought that he did so because it was the most fitting. And there are good arguments if you read, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas, why this is the case. Now, it would seem strange that we got the most fitting way to be saved, why the others got not the most fitting, if, if we're indeed right about this. And I would say there's also something that seems quite wrong about having a second incarnation somewhere else. It somehow seems to devalue just how Cosmologic, cosmological event uh, incarnation uh, of Jesus Christ was. So all these issues have led at least some Catholics and theologians, philosophers and scientists to think that while there may very well be extraterrestrial life, there probably isn't rational extraterrestrial life. I hope that there is, because I think it would be absolutely awesome to, to get to run into them one day and hear about their relationship uh, with, with God and understand a bit more about who God is through hearing their stories of their, uh, how they were basically, of their friendship with God and how their salvation worked itself out. But this, as I've tried to say a number of times, or like I did catch myself rather than saying aliens, hypothetical, rational, extraterrestrial aliens, we don't know if they exist. Uh, but I think even speculating about their existence actually forces us to think through what we think a human being is and how we are saved through the incarnation. So I'm going to spend the final just couple of minutes, and this is something I'd be happy to also take more questions about, uh, thinking about what it means in practice to be 
a Catholic astronomer, Catholic scientist, I would say actually Catholic professional of, of any kind. Uh, one of the things that I think probably many of you have pondered that I have definitely thought about is how open do I have to be about my faith to be, uh, you know, faithfully Catholic uh, in, a, in a workplace, or in my case, uh, at the university. And I think this depends. Um, I have chosen to be open from very early on, from when I converted. Um, and this has brought an incredible number of blessings and really fantastic meetings and events and sort of conversions. It's just been a beautiful, beautiful thing. That does not mean that it's always the prudent thing to do. And this is something that is totally, I think, it does not make you not a faithful Catholic scientist to not be always out in the open about your faith and your views that, that sort of flow from it. A second question is then, should it affect, in my case, what kind of topic I study, but it could also be what kind of work that, that you choose. How much should your faith actually feed into what you choose to do, at least within, within the field that you feel called to work in? In my case, most of the time it does not, at least not in any way that I know explicitly. Uh, when I do astronomy, um, I sort of let the discipline of astronomy and the questions that are posed within it uh, drive my curiosity in the directions that seem the most fruitful to make scientific discoveries. That being said, I have noticed that the more that I have sort of become conscious of my faith and practicing my faith, I have been more and more drawn to questions that do have some consequences uh, for, for the faith. So I like to think about things like planets and the origins of life of planets. And I don't think it's by accident that as you sort of train your mind to think uh, at theological truths and pursue those, that you might find your interest in the workplace also uh, uh, change a bit as well. And I would just be, you know, pay attention to that. I said, I don't think um, that you have to choose some, choose particular topics, but I would say be attentive. And uh, you might find that it leads you to places that are quite unexpected and that helps you to bind together your professional and your faith, uh, faith life. Um, should it affect how you do science, in my case, astronomy? And here I think it's a yes and no kind of thing. Obviously, uh, how you apply the scientific method should not depend on if you're Catholic or not. But one of the things, again, that I have noticed over time that has grown uh, is an attentiveness to the people that I'm working with and an attentiveness to not sacrifice their dignity for the faster pursuit of some uh, scientific truth. Um, so I think there, I would, I would sort of separate the methods of the field, which should be set by the field itself, and how you approach, how you prioritize different things in your workplace, and especially the eternal souls of your co-workers versus, uh, you know, making a discovery and making an advance at the workplace and so on. And maybe the final, uh, final thing, how do you know that you're called to become something like a Catholic scientist, uh, a Catholic astronomer, or put whatever uh, X that you, you want after Catholic. 
Uh, I don't think there's an easy, easy answer, but my main advice, and, and this is not something that I've come up with, I've taken it from many, many wiser people than myself, is to not sit still while you are pondering this, but to actually move in the direction that you feel drawn to, if it is you know, a virtuous uh, and fruitful direction, to take small steps in the direction. In my case, I noticed that I got really excited about astronomy as a student, and I did not get as excited about chemistry, even though that was the original path that I was on. And the more research that I did in astronomy, the more excited I got. And that was the area of study where I would do all-nighters without it feeling like a sacrifice. Um, I also noticed that over time that that was a place where it was easiest for me to actually be a good person, a good professional person. Uh, and I think that's the other thing to pay attention to, both how your sort of enjoyment of it goes, but also if it's something that makes virtue easy uh, or if it's something that makes the opposite uh, easy. So those would just be my parting advice. And with that, again, thank you for listening and I'm happy to take any questions.